Got a thing from the Center for Premodern Studies at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. Professor Ryan Greenwood specializes in legal history. He is steward of UMN's Law Library Special Collections. Professor Bruno Devanst is a Belgian legal historian and is currently a visiting professor at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. Wallace, and I'm here with our colleagues from the law school. If you gentlemen care to introduce yourself. Hello, my name is Bruno de Banst. I'm visiting professor from the University of Uppsala in Sweden, but my background is actually that of a Belgian legal historian, which is relevant for today's topic, but I'll first pass on my colleague Ryan. Hello, I'm Ryan Greenwood. I'm the curator of rare books and special collections at the University of Minnesota Law Library. And today, what is your thing? What is the object that you're going to share with us? Thanks. Maybe I can give you a little bit of background about the object and explain it a little bit. This is a book called Praxis Rerum Criminalium in Latin, and it's by a Flemish jurist. And I probably will get his name incorrect, or at least I will pronounce it incorrectly, but I'll let Bruno correct me. It's, I think, Jost de Dam Hauder. And the book is very interesting from a number of perspectives, but just to introduce first how it came into our collection, we acquired it from a rare book dealer a few years ago. And what was so interesting about it was that it had been formerly owned by a noted 20th century jurist whose name is Hermann Kantorowicz. And uh, he was one of the most eminent German jurists of the 20th century, we think. And he fled from Nazi Germany in 1933. And he built his career as a medieval legal historian, which was one of the noted medieval legal historians of the 20th century. And also in general jurisprudence, he wrote a work on the struggle for legal science or the struggle in legal science, which is a a forerunner of legal realism. So he was also an expert in criminal law. He worked in constitutional law. So he was really someone who worked across a few different fields. And he was briefly in the United States after 1933. And then he taught at Oxford and Cambridge, and he passed away in Cambridge in 1940 during the Second World War. And the other thing that's very interesting and notable is that his personal library is in our collection. So we have his personal library, which was acquired from his widow in 1941, but indirectly through Harvard University, which kept some items, but we have the bulk of his library. But this was one book that we did not have. And so when we found it on the market and we saw that it was owned by him, we were pretty excited and we purchased the book. So that's how it came into the collection and why we had a special interest in it, apart from our general interest in legal history and Roman and canon law. The book is a is a work on Roman criminal law and procedure, and we can say Roman Dutch or Roman Flemish. And it was very popular 
North of the Alps. It was published in 39 editions, but, and we'll say a little bit more about why it was influential and interesting. And I'll, maybe I can let Bruno say a little bit more about the importance of the book from that perspective. Thank you, Ryan. Maybe just to explain a little bit about Belgian legal history. So basically, we have the old Belgian legal history, which predates the French Revolution. And then in 1795, we were basically conquered and annexed by the French. They completely erased all our institutions, all our law books, everything disappeared. And from 1795 on, we have French law. We still have French codifications. We have the French judicial structure, administrative structure. So everything is French since 1795. And this means as a Belgian legal historian, we look at the old legal history from before the French Revolution as something that is basically completely dead. It was very rich. We have the Netherlands were a very densely populated region. So there is a lot going on. There is a lot of law. There is a lot of legal practice, a lot of writings, which were quite interesting and sometimes avant-garde for that time. But still, it's all dead. And that's a big difference with, for example, Sweden, where they have one continuous legal history where you can just go back and back all the way till the 12th, 13th century. And that's a big difference. But still, when you look at this book, it's fascinating for so many reasons. It's maybe first to say that the dark page of the book is that the Damhoudre, as, uh, or the Damudre, as you could pronounce it in the local dialect, it's, he actually was plagiarizing another lawyer, Philip Willans, who was from Ghent and the Damhoudre was from Bruges. So two big cities in Belgium. And, um, he basically made three different versions of this work. He had the Latin version, which we are studying today. He made a Dutch version and he made a French version. So three different versions. But he basically inspired himself on the Dutch version written by Willans some 30 years earlier. So when, when you look at the Dutch version, it's basically just copy-pasted completely. Even for the norms of its time, it's plagiarism. It's plain plagiarism. And he did it deliberately because he everywhere he removed all the indications that you could trace it back to Willans. He changed, for example, the names of the cities from Ghent. He erased it and wrote Bruch. Or he just, when it was about specific names, he marked out the names and made generalizations like the bailiffs instead of this bailiff. But it's just plain plagiarism. It has to be said that in his Latin version, you could say that the basic structure of the book, the basic information is plagiarized. It's basically just translated from Dutch, but that's one third of the book. Two thirds is with all kind of things that he added. So his own addition to the work, all kind of references to scholars from Roman law, from canon law. But yeah, so it has its own value also. And maybe also Ryan mentioned it, that it was quite important at its time. So the problem with Willand's work was that it was only handwritten. There were only a few copies. It was in Dutch. So it didn't have a big spread. And that was the problem. So Willand's work remained quite unknown. But when it was being translated by the Damhoudere, it got this big spread because it was in Latin. People could all read Latin. And it's important because it was basically the first work on criminal law, so tractat on criminal law north of the Alps. If you look at legal history, it's only the Italians basically till then who were writing about criminal law. But what time period are we talking about and the separation between him 
and Willen. So Willen's version dates from around 1510. They don't know exactly, but it's around 1510. While the Damhoder really got into the topic in 1540, he was appointed in May 1540 in this new function dealing with criminele, as it was being called. And already one year and a bit later, in October 1541, he had the manuscript ready both in Latin and in French to be printed. It will only be printed in 1544 because the illustrations were lagging behind. He had ordered many, but Ryan will say something more about the illustrations later. He had ordered illustrations for his book, but it took the illustrator 15 months to only produce 15 illustrations. And he was so tired of waiting. He was complaining, like chasing the illustrator. And after 15 months, he said, okay, I'm tired of it. He just published it with a limited number of illustrations. There are 15, while in the version that we are studying from 1570, the second edition in Latin, there are 64. So there's a big difference there. But there is a 30 years difference between Willans and between the Damhoudre. And your question is actually quite interesting because you could ask, like, in 30 years' time, were there no big changes or how could he just copy-paste it? That's an interesting question because actually the praxis had not changed that much in this 30 years' time. And also, it's illustrative for the kind of like conservative looking back character of the Damhoudre that he just, he translated it into Latin. He added some things, but he kept the basic structure of Willans. It also has to be noted that Willans' work was not famous because it did not get spread, but in itself it was really a masterpiece. And so that's why the version by the Damhoudre was also so good. It was the first work north of the Alps and it got this big spread because people were interested in it. It had all kinds of translations. Also interesting is that the Damhoudre himself had three different versions. The Latin one, which was published first in 1544 in Antwerp, then the same year, a French translation, and then also the next year, a Dutch translation. So he did it all by himself, three different languages, which is quite spectacular. As a skillful plagiarist. And so I guess just coming from the outside, this prompts a lot of questions when you consider we know what's coming down the road with the Low Countries, with the big confessional changes and the independence movement. So you're having this law document put out in these three languages. Does that interplay with these ideas of political and cultural and confessional sovereignty in any way? And does Damholder pop up in these changes as the century goes on? We actually had a nice discussion about this earlier, me and Ryan. And I do have to say first that a lot of the things that I'm saying are based on an article published by Professor Strubbe, who was professor at Ghent University in 1970. So he wrote an article in Dutch. So that's why it's also that article did not get much spread. So what I'm saying here is uh, I'm a bit of a dumbhoudre by uh, translating in language that many understand information that does not originally come from myself. So Professor Strubbe actually made mentions this and he says that it's very interesting to see because the Damhouder on the one hand he's this like classical Bartolist referring to Bartolus who is one of these Italians who really said a lot about uh, criminal law so he's on the one hand is Bartolus following him like blindly so as a lawyer he's a Bartolus but as a human as a mensch, mensch the Germans would say he's a humanist it, and there is a big contradiction there because on the one hand, he follows this kind of strict interpretation. Criminal law is good. He's not critical towards criminal law itself. He's only critical 
towards the application of criminal law. But he says, okay, criminal law is good. As a lawyer, he believes in it, in the system. But then on the other hand, he's, he's a humanist and he says, yeah, you should have an understanding for people and don't punish too harsh. But he does not really deal with this. He stays on this classical line of the Bartolis. And on the other hand, you can here and there read some kind of like moral elements that you can trace back to, to his humanist character because he was a child of his time, of course. And as you mentioned, Charles V, his edition of Praxis Rimmel Criminalium is somewhere, somehow, on some parts, influenced by the big Carolina, the criminal code by Charles V, but only on a few places. That He goes a bit further than Villan, so these are illustrations, because it dates from after the Carolina, of course. It seems, and I'm not an expert in the way that others are, but it seems that Damhauder was influential for some of his chapters in particular, like on torture and witchcraft, and so this also plays into the context. But in a way, as Bruno and I were saying before, to be a Bartolist in the period that he was during this kind of kind of growth of legal humanism was coming out of France, and it was to be quite conservative in a way. And for his book to become so popular and a popular textbook that was used, it's a kind of it's a resurgence of some of these older ideas and an older style, an older method in the law. So it, there's something very interesting, but the book becomes popular because of, at least in part, the illustrations. So this is, and we probably, I should have said before, it's probably the most lavishly illustrated law book, at least according to some, of all time. So with the 64 woodcut illustrations, each one illustrating a different crime, this is a great teaching tool. This is great for students who are coming up through law school. And so this is a big part of its of its popularity. We were talking before, what was his motive? I think it was probably financial. He's interested, I think, in, in selling books, but he finds a way to be very influential, and uh, even with some of these older ideas. But it's the illustrations themselves are pretty remarkable. I guess another question, speaking of that sort of natural conservatism, is like, Thinking of what is the relation of this book to older medieval and late antique law? The Justinianic Code got printed and older law code, Salic law, various early medieval law codes. Where does what he's passing down in a criminal law stand in relation to those? As Bruno said before, being a Bartolist means that he's following the most prominent commentator on Justinian in general, the books that had been recovered, the Corpus Juris Civilis. And it's this, the Italian school is all about a lot of citations. There's a commentary, which is three times the length of the original text and all of this kind of thing. And so to be a Bartolist in the period that Damhauder is, it is a little bit backward looking, but at the same time, Bartolist, it shouldn't be said that Bartolist loses all of his influence in the 16th century to the legal humanists or something like this. It's a tried and true method for explicating the text of Roman law. So it's for textbook purposes and as an introductory thing in a law school, this would still be quite appropriate, I think. So maybe also to add that, so Willans, the original author, he's the one who writes a book based on the praxis, so the legal praxis of the time. And his brilliance is that he manages out of this blurry mass of the praxis to make a beautiful book out of it. It's well-structured, it's well-written, so the 1510 version of Willans. So this is based on praxis, like the criminal law as it's being applied in 
Flanders, the county of Flanders, basically, at that time, the beginning of the 16th century. And Willans had felt the need, like, I have to write a book to explain, like, also to non-lawyers, like, how is everything organized? So if you ask about, is this Roman law? Well, a little bit, but it's most of all local law, local Flemish law, legal practice, and that's what it's based on. And then you get 30 years later, the Damhouder comes by, he's a Bartolist, he basically takes this text of Willans, he tra- he translates it into Latin, and he adds all these kind of Roman law references. And there is actually a great anecdote, because the Damhouder, he didn't really understand completely fully everything that Willans was writing. And at a certain moment, it's about exceptions that you have when you're summoned to court that you are exonerated. So the court says you have to come, but for in some cases you can actually stay at home. And then Willans says, for example, when your wife is sick, or when your children are dead, or these are like valid excuses that you can just stay home. And then it's being translated by uh, by the Damhouder, who misreads the word of wife. It's a wave of wuf in Dutch. He reads wine. So the U and the V are similar. So instead of sickness of the wife, he reads sickness because of wine. So hangover. So he translates it completely wrong. He interprets it wrong, reads it wrong, translates it wrong. And then he's, he manages to find some kind of like references to <laughs> Romanists referring to when you have a hangover that you don't have to go to court. So like this is a great illustration of like how where local law, a local practice meets this Roman law. But he didn't got it completely there. Okay, when your child is dead, you're excused. And also when you have a hangover. Yeah, that was not what Willand wrote. He wrote when your wife is sick. This is a great example because actually one of the things that legal historians are struggling about is to find out what is Roman law, what is the influence of Roman law, what is local. And it's often very hard to find Like, where does it come from. The case of Damhauder is a really nice example where you have a core that is obviously local practice, and then he incorporates it into this bigger Roman world. And of course, a big part of the law is sort of legitimacy and justification based on authorities, and so it's nice to add these kinds of things, and particularly if you're teaching and things like that. I guess one other question I would have is, what accounts for the immense popularity? First of all, knowing, like, even though it didn't have a big distribution, somebody... (laughs) in the Dutch-speaking areas must have been like, ah, I remember this from somewhere. Like, how do you get away with that? And then secondly, is there a change in the profession for this accessible sort of law book? Is it just because printing makes something so widely available and this is just an effect of the technology as we commonly attribute it? There's just a demand for printed knowledge. And so people are just trying to grab everything, whether it's the courtier or it's a law book or it's a Bible. They're, they just want something for for their collection and speaks to an authority and a knowledge just on its own, whether or not you per se need it. But maybe it's also responding to a specific need and expansion of the profession. Yes. So as we, we mentioned earlier, it was the first book that was written about criminal law north of the Alps. So the Italians had basically the monopoly. And then you have Willans, 1510, who writes it because there is a need. He thinks I have to explain people. So he, he wrote this beautiful book about criminal law in Flanders at the time. 30 years later, you have the Damhouder, who probably indeed had somewhere found a manuscript or had the manuscript, who thinks maybe it could be a good idea to have a bigger spread, to 
to write this in Latin so that also people who are not speaking Dutch can consult it, adding the illustrations because he got this idea in earlier works that he wrote already. He has illustrations on custody. He wrote a book on custody in the 1530s and there already he has illustrations, but also another books on criminal law, like a book from 1541 by Mileus. That one also already had illustrations. So this was being done. But when you think about it, just everything comes together. There is not a book on this topic that is exhaustive north of the Alps. He finds this manuscript or has this manuscript. He translated it in, in language that everybody can understand. He adds illustrations, which give it an extra an extra value. And then he has it printed and there, there it kicks off. He was the first to do this. And uh, we should emphasize, too, that he does the translations himself. So imagine that you have these books hitting the market in different languages at about the same time, and suddenly you can create a groundswell, maybe, and that can help sell the book as well. But I think, yeah, the illustrations really, I think, do something for it. And the printing technology, of course, it's making use of, of these things, and the print runs can be fairly significant. And 39 editions in less than 100 years or so is pretty, pretty darn good. And the other thing that we can show with this particular copy is that students responded to it. The reason that, the other reason that I like this copy so much, apart from the fact that it is the book that it is, and also that it was owned by Kantorowicz, is that it's one of the most extensively and beautifully annotated books in our collection. So you just have all sorts of amazing kind of annotations in the book. And there's a use of manicules to point out parts of the text. There's all sorts of underlining. There's like vertical marginalia. There's horizontal stuff. There's interlinear. So it's got everything from that perspective. He's annotated some of the images as well. And the images, I, I should say, may be directed to law students. There, there's Some of them are a little bit salacious, right, because these crimes, some of them are sexual crimes of violence. And these students are teenagers for the most part, student who annotated this. I think a student was probably less than 22 or so. And law students tended to be young. Some of the pictures are a little bit pornographic. So there's a lot There's a lot in there. And there's a lot that would increase the popularity of the book among, among students. But the thing that this student does, I think that's also interesting, is there's references to literature. And there's a kind of humanist, I would say maybe a humanist pretension. It's maybe not too deep. There's citations to Ovid and Seneca and Cicero and things like that. There's a little bit of Greek in there. I think it's all word derivations from Greek. But So there's a kind of moral discourse, and there's a sort of discourse of virtue. So this is, has to do a little bit with the social formation of will be professional lawyers. And it, has, it says something about the general education beyond just a legal education. I would say the one thing I wanted to point out, just looking at the chapters, this is another one where you have even the picture is annotated. And this is on corporal punishment. So this is the teacher that can beat the student and the, the parent or the tutor and the ward. So it's just, it's really interesting. The annotations here are in a few languages. There's German and Latin, and there's a little bit of Greek. And I think probably was a German student. But it just, it really adds interest. I think it adds research value to it. And I think it shows why the book was so popular. At least it's an example of how popular it was and the kind of response it elicited from, from students. To some extent, the uh, the more salacious chapters, this one is on fornication, and it's well annotated, right? The ones on violence, the ones that have to do with self-defense, 
are well annotated. Defending a friend are well annotated. So there's maybe plugs into an honor culture among young men. So there's a lot here, I think. And there's a, I think there's a great research potential that comes out of those annotations. Yeah, it's amazing. And we'll, we'll have some pictures available of this. But first of all, the notes are like, I wish my notes were this neat. Never. <laughs> And a little cartoon hand pointing to important, important quotes. It's, yeah, he's got those throughout and notes on the pictures. And yeah, it's, it's, a, it's amazing. And also getting the feeling in the air from the student, from the person making the notes of showing that humanist knowledge, right? This is not only a product of that atmosphere, but then the student's engagement with it is from that same intellectual atmosphere, right? So it's amazing to see that. I think one more question I would ask would be, if there's anything that you could bring Dom Holder back and ask him <laughs> about his work and his intent, what would you say? What would you ask? I think that's obvious. I would ask, why did you do this? It is plagiarism. Because it was not accepted even at the time. That's something that Professor Strub in his article makes perfectly clear because they did have different standards than today. But this kind of like really obvious plagiarism, especially in the, the Dutch version. So the Latin version is he really did a big work on that one. But the Dutch version, he really, he really cheated. He really changed here and there. My question would be like, what did you think? Did you think that you would get away with this or you were just lazy or you wanted all the honor for yourself? Why did you do it? That's a question that I think that I would like to ask him. But actually, it's a question we could ask to people nowadays also. Why do you do plagiarism? Often it takes as much time to, to put into the plagiarism than in doing the actual work. And that's something that many students, ah, when you think about it. But I think that's an interesting thing because it's so clear, it's so obvious that there are so many traces. He's he tries to hide it, but he does it on a way that yeah, just put the two texts next to each other, Wieland and the Damhaus, it's just copy-paste, literally copy-paste. He just changes a little bit to, to hide it. But why did he do it? Why did he do it? Why didn't he just say, I just like the Latin version has its originality. It is the effort of translation. It is the effort of annotating. It is also a little bit updating. So why didn't he just say, I took this text from my eminent colleague Wieland, and I just, I think it deserves spread and it can be in Latin and et cetera, et cetera. He would also be praised for it. I think he would maybe even be more praised for it, for taking a manuscript that is 30 years old to remove the dusk and to do all the work on it. That's something that I find incomprehensive, why he did this, like the cheating. He obviously has a lot of merits for himself. He's not just some stupid man. He's a lawyer. He He's a he has a lot of practice, he has a lot of knowledge, and he shows that also in his Rerum Criminalium. He is a good lawyer. He did the job. That for always will hunt him, because everybody, when in, in Flemish legal history, when we mention the Damhauder, oh, yeah, the one who plagiarized Wielands, that's the first thing that you think about, even if he had a lot of merits from himself. But maybe you would like to ask something about the illustrations, Ryan. <laughs> that's correct, Bruno. I would, I would want to know a little bit more about the student 
and the nationality, if he's German, and what became of him, what his subsequent career was. And if he was just bored at the time, he was daydreaming, or was he uh, was he a brilliant student who was uh, actually doing some good work here? Or it, it would be interesting to know a little bit more about him. But just as a final note, since this was in the collection in the personal library of Professor Kantorowicz, he also acquired it for a reason. And I think it was also to do with the annotations and the quality of the annotations. And he may have seen something in it from that perspective. And incidentally, he not only puts his name at the front of it and the year that he acquired it, 1904, but he also annotates a little bit. So it says something about you if you annotate a book that's from the 16th century. But I think his annotations are actually quite interesting too, as elsewhere in his personal collection that we have. So this, I think it just opens avenues for, for research and raises a lot of interesting things for students and scholars. Yeah, and I could see the use of it in the classroom today because it is that still that evocative just through the illustration of, okay, what are they thinking about? What do they consider illicit and illicit? And what interests early modern legal students? Is it the same as students today? And I think that's interesting. I look at the fifth and sixth century, so it's, this is amazing. <laughs> This is like an encyclopedia look into this student's life. Are there any notes, any clues? I really haven't found any for the identity of the student, and that that's interesting too. But one, one other thing to point out is that the book has been, as we say, sophisticated, which means that it has some pages that have been replaced in facsimile, maybe, and some of it is the front matter. So it's possible that the student's name was written on some of those preliminary pages that have been replaced. And then it, it also raises another question, what were there notes on these pages? That's also a mystery, which is interesting. But unfortunately, this one is one that we can't solve. This is, this is permanently lost in, in that sense. But but yeah, it would be great. Maybe at some point in the future that we'll know, but I don't think I don't think we'll know from the book. Somebody finds a random letter from like fifteen seventy five. Oh, I had this book in my possession and I made a note here. Just to close, we like to ask more fun question unrelated to the object, just a background or thought wise. I actually have an anecdote. I first came across the Dumhauder without actually knowing anything about lore about the Dumhauder already in 99. I studied history first, so I'm a historian first, lawyer second, and then I continued as a legal historian, which I'm doing right now still. But actually in 1999, I was finishing a master's thesis, which was about historical dung on Flemish soil. So I was, for instance, studying how the city of Bruges was dealing with its waste. So the waste collection and also the waste trade. And the waste. this was a, quite an interesting topic. It was everything about Flemish agriculture, Flemish manure and cities, how they were involved into this bigger story. It was a really a fun master's thesis. But actually, as an illustration for the damage looked by throwing out your bedpan on the street while somebody was walking there at that moment and he got the content of the bedpan on the head. There was actually a specific axio for this in Roman law. And uh, one of the illustrations by the Damhauder is actually about this uh, axio de ejectis fel effusis, as it is in Roman law. There you can see actually somebody is emptying the bedpan on somebody else's head. And I used this illustration in my master's thesis in 1999, not knowing that 
what I would learn afterwards about the Damhauder and law and everything. So I came already across his illustration in 1999, which was a previous lifetime for me from a retrospective. So that's a little anecdote that relates me directly to the book on another way. Yeah, these are all good questions. The first one is just on how did you become a pre-modernist? And I, through libraries. Libraries are just a great place to to get into history. And that's that's really how I got into it, not knowing what I would find or how far back I would go, but I just started going further back and finding texts, first the kind of famous ones that you read and have to read, and then spreading out further into history per se. And uh, But it was through libraries as much as through uh, through courses, although certainly through courses too. But you have to take that time, I think, to, to spend in, in the library to, uh, to explore. All right. Thank you, gentlemen, for your time. It's a beautiful book, and I think we'll be able to get pictures of it up. But in case we don't, how can people uh, contact y'all and take a gander at this and other items in the Law Library's Rare Book Collection? Sure. Thanks, Elijah. This is uh, We're over here in the, uh, on the West Bank or in the law school. All the collection is in the Riesenfeld Rare Book Research Center. And everyone is more than welcome to contact me and set up a research appointment, and we can we can get you going with the items in the collection, this one and many others. Thank you again for your time, and thank you for coming on our podcast. This has been I've Got a Thing from the Center for Premodern Studies at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. If you're interested in supporting the center, please visit our website, at cla.umn.edu forward slash premodern. Our featured music is Dangerous Diamonds by Rogue Valley, written by Chris Koza, and Summer is a Kuminen by Anya Badaldabud. <laughs>